0: Okay, could you just start by saying your name and your title and department?
1: Hi, my name's Andrew Sultan. Um, I'm a doctor, medical doctor that is um, working at the John Radcliffe Hospital predominantly, and the research work we're talking about is with the um, Institute of Biomedical Engineering, um, which is part of the Department of Engineering Sciences.
0: Okay, that's great. Um, and what kind of doctor are you?
1: Um, so I'm, I'm a junior doctor training to be a cardiologist, mm-hmm. and um halfway, halfway on the road to, to that.
0: Yeah. Let's develop that a bit further. So, can you just t- tell me? Um, I mean, we don't have time to do the whole thing, but can you just tell me a little bit about how you got to where you are now, starting from how you first got interested in medicine? Um, oh, that question stretches back
1: a while, but I, th- I think from a very young age, I was always interested in, um, in fundamental technology, science, and biology. And for, for various reasons, which will have been kind of specific at the time and evolved with time, um, I decided to apply to medical school. And I think the reasons I'm very glad I'm practising today are very different from the reasons I applied to medical school all those years ago. Um, But at the same time, I'm still glad for that decision. Um, So I I studied for six years at Cambridge. I was at Christ's College. And the course was set up with three years of undergraduate, um, hard lecture-based material. Um, including a year in immunology and virology, which was fascinating, and later proved to be relevant, and then three clinical years, which were based out of Addenbrooke's hospital and the surrounding hospitals, like um, Ipswich, Bury St Edmunds, Stevenage, Peterborough. We did a lot of travelling in the, in the east of England, um, and after that, I came over to Oxford. It must have been 2018, um, and I've been here since, so four four and a bit years now, mm-hmm. um, and
0: quite enjoyed it here. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate it slightly heresy, but I've enjoyed it. Yeah. And and before um COVID came along, uh had you become engaged in research work in Oxford?
1: So yes. So um I'd met a postdoctoral researcher in David David Clifton's lab um at a conference in Cambridge and when I came across um I met with her at Ting Ting Zhu and she introduced me to David and David and I got on very well and And he's and, in biomedical engineering. Yes. yes. Mm-hmm. Um David is a professor of clinical machine learning, um, and we had started work on, on a small number of projects, all of which were machine learning based. And the general theme of it is looking at um, the kinds of clinical data that are collected in routine practice, and that can be blood tests, vital signs, it can be um, textual medical records. And David's lab specialty is anything but imaging. They look at absolutely anything but medical imaging. Um, and we, 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 at the time, pre-COVID, were working on a project um, looking at a disease which affects older men um, called um, abdominal aortic aneurysms. These are, it's a key blood vessel at the back of your tummy, um, which can balloon out in a portion of men. Um, the difficulty with, with patients who have this condition is a lot of people have a small amount of ballooning, but only a very small portion of those will progress for that balloon to get bigger and then eventually pop, and that would be life-threatening. Um, but many will, will live the rest of their life happily with a small amount of ballooning, and there would be no consequence to that. Um, one of the difficulties is for surgeons is deciding who do you operate on, which, which of the patients are going to progress. And we were trying to use routinely collected data as part of a project um, under um, Mr. Lee, now Professor Lee, um, in the Nuffield Department of Surgical Sciences. And um, to to try and pick out which patients were going to progress more quickly, which patients were going to progress slowly, and um, hopefully that would one day feed into a um, a system to decide which patients to operate on.
0: So tell me a bit about AI in medicine. So what what are you what are you asking? So you're, you're trying to write an algorithm essentially to mm. take th- this routinely collected data. Tell you tell me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, so. AI means a lot it means a lot of things to a lot of people, and it's a very exciting field. I, th- I think it's broadly helpful to look at AI in perhaps two broader categories. One is what I would call the simpler AI, um, which is an older approach. And the work we've done actually falls into the, the simpler AI category. And there's then a category of what I I would call higher AI. This is the long-term goal to design a machine or a system that is autonomous, truly autonomous, and can can work for multiple purposes, multiple functions. I think for now, the successes and innovations we've seen in artificial intelligence in the last, say, 10 years, they've been in both fields. There have been some great breakthroughs, particularly from Google DeepMind, um, when it comes to the the broader goal of generalised artificial intelligence. But in what we call in the field narrow AI, which relates to AI which does one thing, AI which does one specific thing, um, that... That that's the field we've been working in, and what what's the reason we, we work in that field is that it's it's a little bit it's quite a bit easier. Um, the methods that exist today already are quite good, um, and that kind of AI performs a single task or a single question. In our case, it makes a single decision: does this patient have COVID or do they not have COVID? Um, that kind of challenge, um, I would broadly describe to people as almost almost a fancy type of pattern recognition i mean we, we as physicians at medical school are taught medicine a lot of medicines pattern recognition you spot the patterns in the data and reach a diagnosis this was all about um getting a machine to spot the patterns and because it's a machine doing it not a human the machine doesn't get tired it doesn't get hungry it doesn't get sleepy and it can look at more things than humans can and it will work reliably well for everyone and whereas it might take 20 30 years for a physician to see two or three thousand cases and algorithm can see that in a minute or two and it's that kind of very narrow very limited very focused AI where I think at the moment we're seeing tangible applications begin to creep into clinical practice and mm. um, but there are many who are working on the broader goal of trying to get something which is generalized more intelligent which much more resembles a human but I, I think it'll be a little bit of time before we get there
0: mm. So it's just sticking with the aortic
1: aneurysms for a moment, how was, how was that going? Um, mm. So the the main challenge with then as with as with many bits of research is, was the data. So we 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 developed a, an algorithm which had picked out certain things um, that may have predicted progression. But the challenge with AI is you really need to go out and validate it, much like having a drug that works in the lab. You then need to go out and run the clinical trial. And I think that the sticking point at the time was was getting access to data from other centres, um, trusts or hospital groups outside of the UK to show that this this works and. I think it's it's hard to know without that kind of validation. You really you really need to go out and try and see if it works. So that 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 was where where we got up to mm-hmm. when, when COVID came along. Right.
0: Okay. So let's. So we've now reached COVID coming along. Can you remember where you were when you first became aware that COVID was going to be something that was really quite serious? And 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 at what point you thought this was something that your region of research was area of research was something that might contribute?
1: And hmm. um, at the time. Um, I was working as a junior doctor at the adult intensive care unit at the John Radcliffe. Um and I to be honest I quite enjoyed it. I thought it was a it was a very lovely rotation, everyone was very kind. And I remember in my last in my last month we were ushered into a room for, for what they called um, high consequence infectious disease training. And at the time for us COVID was something so that was what month
0: was this, do you think?
1: Um this must have been it must have been February twenty twenty. Yeah. Mm. Um at the time at the very beginning of february perhaps at the time covid was something that was on the news that mm. felt a long way away and it didn't feel real for us just yet in the uk and um, and i remember we we went through our ppe training this was personal protective equipment and in the very first instance um particularly for the intensive care unit the protocol was 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 very stringent and um, you had multiple layers of ppe for example three pairs of gloves um, two lots of face coverings and every every inch of you was covered at least twice um. so it was quite something it really was quite something and I think that was the first time I thought oh gosh this 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 really is coming this is going to happen and um, and as part of that rotation we we had uh, we used to cover the acute medical take this is um acutely unwell patients in the emergency department and the acute medical department at the front door um and I, I think the first time that that the scale of the challenge that was coming really hit me. was, was a couple of weeks before lockdown was announced. It was it must have been either the end of February or the start of March. Um, I was working as a junior doctor as part of a team run by one of the infectious diseases specialists. And this was shortly after the guidance had been issued about testing people coming into hospital who had respiratory symptoms. So initially it was based on if you traveled to certain regions, but then that evolved into anyone who had a cough, fever or shortness of breath. Only the, the difficulty was that a very high proportion of our patients had a cough, fever, or shortness of breath. It's our hospital. Um, and the tests had to go off, I think, to Portsmouth at the time. They were sent by road um, to a specialised laboratory. And as a result, turnaround times were three to four days. And in that period of time, in those three to four days, you, you don't know. You've just, you, you've just got someone who has a cough, fever. We didn't really understand the clinical trajectory of COVID, so you couldn't even really use the clinical history. And contact tracing was patchy at best at the time. Um, so we found ourselves very quickly on an evening shift with a lot of patients who needed a COVID result before they can be moved out of the, the acute part of the hospital and on towards. But we knew that result wasn't coming for several days. Um, and I think that that's where this started. I, I, I was thinking we have a reasonable amount of routinely collected data, exactly the same types of data we worked with for the abdominal and project. And that data is already available within one hour. The pathway to do that is very well established. Every patient gets it at the front door, um, and whether we can use that data to predict a COVID test result many hours, many days in advance of back then, when you when you got the results. So, what were the the key um, pieces of data that get collected at the front door when a sick
0: patient comes in?
1: Um. So when, when you come in. Um, you were initially met by, by a member of known, most often the nursing staff, but sometimes um, sometimes medical staff depending on how severe your condition is. And some basic details will be taken, your name, address, contact details, and then a very brief summary of your reason for coming to hospital. Then often patients quickly proceed to have their blood taken and their vital signs recorded. And these blood tests, are in, in technical language, they the full blood count, the urea, creatinine and electrolytes, liver function, and and um, C-reactive protein. These are kind of a very standard panel of blood tests that most patients, if not all patients, being admitted to every hospital in this country will end up having. And what do they tell you? Um, they, they are a general health checkup. They tell you things like the oxygen-carrying capacity of your blood. They look at your kidneys and how your kidneys are functioning, your liver and how your liver's functioning, and then some markers of inflammation. So is there any evidence of um, of angry immune response in your body? And um, in total, there are about 40 to 50 different data points within those. So there are kind of subtests. Each one of the subtests tells you something, and we know a little bit about each one of the subtests. And then you've got heart, heart rate and blood pressure. Were you coming to that? Yes, you your, your vital yes, signs. Yes, yes. So that's your, your heart rate, blood pressure, temperature, respiratory rate, and this, again, pretty standard set of, of measurements. Um, and together, it's a lot of data points, and we as clinicians, we're trained to, to skim over them or we'll kind of look at the important ones and look for grossly abnormal values but the normal range actually covers all manner of SINs. It includes a huge amount of variety and trying to unpick a signal within results that are normal for the general population, but not necessarily normal for that patient, I think is something difficult to do in a busy clinical shift. And this is really where the kind of advanced pattern recognition of of narrow AI comes into effect. It's where um, AI can look at these data points that are much, in a way that's much more granular than we can as humans. Um, and then after, after these data have been collected, typically you'll have the blood test back in an hour, maybe an hour and a half if you're in a smaller hospital, um, and your vital signs take about one to two minutes to collect. Um, after that, you would wait to see a doctor, um, you'd be assessed, and a clinical decision would be reached about what, what your treatment plan would be, and that might include scans, it might include um, different tests, tracings of your heart, x-rays, admission to hospital or, or perhaps going home, just depending on, on what what the rest was. And I think the approach we were taking is, is there enough in that data? The, the, these bits of data collected in the first couple of hours, is there enough there for us to make a meaningful decision about your COVID status without needing to wait the, the three days at the time? And that fortunately now it's more like eight to 12 hours for in hospital, but e- even eight hours in an emergency department is a long time when... Mm-hmm. Um, but that, 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 that was what we were trying to achieve. Mm.
0: So you've used the royal we like people do all the time. But was, <laughs> it, was, it, your, was it your idea to, to because you're, you were there at the front line, but was, it, was it you who went to your colleagues and said, can we do something with this? Yes, yeah, so, so I,
1: I remember I was sending an email to uh, now Professor Lee about the, the abdominal aortic aneurysm project. And, and David was copied in and um, I floated the idea. And David immediately was It was immediately supportive, as he always is, he's brilliant. he He immediately kind of jumped to help and David and I and um, David Clifton and I had a chat and and the rest went from there, mm, and mm. Kind of, with David, we developed the idea, we applied for the ethics, and we we, we took it forward. Mm.
0: Did you have to apply for, for extra funding to work on it?
1: Um so initially no, so I think we were in a position that there are already research databases within the university that scrape data from the hospital, so we were able to sort of piggyback on on existing routes within the UK. Um, David's lab already has the infrastructure in terms of computers, um, in terms of time, I already had part of my job delineated for research, although obviously with COVID that got slightly eroded. Um so initially we were able to build this actually for next to no additional cost. Mm. And it's not it's not particularly taxing to develop an algorithm, really the challenges and then taking this algorithm and going out and checking it works. Yes. At other yes, hospitals. Yes. And that's and the you, bit that
0: it, I mean, does David have um, developers or software people in, in his lab? I mean, who actually writes the, the, the code?
1: code. Um, everyone in David's lab is a coder, including right. myself, actually. I've yes. It's <laughs> one of the things that I've loved since I was a kid. Um, so so it, I suppose there's a difference between someone who can code for research purposes and someone who can code for industry-grade You'd put this on an airplane purposes we're all coders for for scientific purposes we're all kind of people who are able to do a basic to medium standard of code but that's distinctly different from someone who for example might write the software that runs your hospital or your airplane um and um, all of the code was written in-house by by myself and by by others in the lab um and that that allowed us to, to build this very cheaply and very quickly mm-hmm. and um we david and i applied for a a grant fund from the, um, it's money which comes from the Wellcome Trust and then cascades through the university called the Medical and Life Sciences Translational Fund. And that was the money that we then used to do the next steps of the study and pay for the validation and pay for the, the deployment at the JR.
0: So what was the strategy for the validation? Let's take it step by step.
1: <laughs> um. So I suppose the research questions are, we, we think we've developed an AI test that works. We have prospectively tried it on data from Oxford and we've shown it works but will it work in the second wave will it work in other hospitals in the UK will it work as well in other hospitals in the UK and can you make it better can you make it
0: faster and can we just sorry go back to the beginning of that you said you'd prospectively do tr- it so you were actually applying it to the patients that were coming into the JR
1: yes but not not in a way that was, initially not in a way that was being used for their clinical care. So initially we were doing it using the data collected for those patients, but not, not in that we weren't using the AI result
0: to make a decision on their care. Right, so was it not in real time? Was this, were you using no, data? initially it yes. wasn't. Yes, so it was data that had been previously collected when the patients came into hospital. You mm. just worked with that data. Yeah, okay.
1: Um, and we, we then wanted to take it from there and kind of take it forward. Yes. And so, um, so I think the, the first question to us is, can we can we make it faster so the kinds of data points we used were typically available in one hour but some subsets of it maybe took an hour 15 or an hour 20 and were done for nearly all patients instead of all patients and so we cut out quite a few of the bits and bobs that went into this and we we really cut it down to a very minimal set of of blood tests that everyone gets and then we thought actually can we go even further can we cut it down to blood tests that don't even need a lab to get Um, So we started off with this big panel, we then took it down to your full blood count, your kidney function, liver function, inflammatory markers and your vitals. And then we tried taking out kidney function, liver function and and inflammatory markers and really went for just your full blood count and your vitals. And what was nice about that combination is you can get a device that's about the size of a shoebox. It's called the OLO. it's from an Israeli startup um, that we'd just started using in Oxford. Um, and that will give you those results in 10 minutes. And so you went from a test that might take one hour to collect the data, now you can get the data in 10 minutes. Um, and so we, we, we started developing subversions, um, each of which was meant to be faster than the last. And then we thought, okay, we've got our version, we've got a subversion, let's go and see if this actually works. And we had, we're very fortunate, we had collaborators and um, wonderful people elsewhere who were interested in helping. And we we worked with the University Hospitals Birmingham, Portsmouth Hospitals, um, and Bedford, as well as, of course, for the second wave here in Oxford, and then took our test and applied it on those data. And what we found is it performed just as well in all of these centres as it did for us. And that's a big thumbs up. It says we're not just detecting something that's Oxford specific or Oxford special, or we're just doing something funny here. This is is a signal that replicates. And that's really important for you to trust your algorithm. You need to know it's going to work when you try it elsewhere. had you, had you
0: given it a name by this point? Yes. <laughs> so and what, can you explain the name? <laughs> so we ended up calling
1: it Curio. And the way it came around is a funny story. Um, back, back in the, the very early days of the project, we had lots of paperwork to fill in, ethics, etc. And one of the boxes on the ethics form required you to give it a short title, so something you can use throughout the form to, re- to, um, to refer to it. And at the time it was called, I think, COVID-19 Machine Learning... Undifferentiated illnesses, or a, a, quite a technical, quite a long phrase. And I copied and pasted it into one of these online acronym generators, and it came up with that. And it selects. It's not a. It's not a pure acronym in that some of the letters in the middle are selected from the middle of words. Um, it's a little bit like a clinical trial sometimes has a bit of a tenuous acronym, but it, I thought it's a nice word. It reads easily, and it, it, it stuck and.
0: It 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 has connotations of something to do with the Catholic Church, doesn't it? Curia. <laughs> <laughs> so I found this out.
1: I found this out a, about a year later, um, when we realised that curial We were looking at web domain names. The web domain was owned by the European Court of Justice, um, and it was the name of an app they used as a filing system for legal documents. But <laughs> we didn't. We didn't
0: do that. that level of homework back in twenty twenty. <laughs> Anyway, sorry, I interrupted. So yes, so you gathered data, again, doing this using um, existing data that had been gathered, but not using it um, in anger, as it were, to, to make the diagnoses mm. yeah, in these other hospitals.
1: So to, so to use it to make a diagnosis, you would need to get some sort of approval from the, the regulatory authorities. Yeah. So pre-COVID, it would have been CE marking. With Brexit, it was going to be UKCA marking. And that it's quite an expensive process to go through. It normally takes... A year to two years I think if you're quick um, and in the heat of the moment we, we didn't have the resources or the funding or the time to go through that now the oh the other thing you need of course is proof that it works first so you have to do the study before you can before you can do that um, the MHRA have got some special pathways in place the MHRA are the licensing authority for this in the UK and these special pathways, allow you with some data to to get an expedited approval for COVID. And a lot of the original COVID tests that came into use and on the market came through this pathway. So lateral flows, for example, initially came via this pathway and only later picked up their, their full regulatory approval. Um, so to us that that was an important part of, of actually being able to use it in the anger of the moment. And that's why initially we we had to do this with, with retrospective data. First of all get the proof it works. Then then try and try and get some sort of authority approval to, to use it in, in the real world. And that has
0: has happened? So the next yes, the
1: next step was was um with we, we, we had some very wonderful colleagues who work in the emergency department. Um and it's a group of consultant emergency physicians with a particular interest in research, and they run a research organization in Oxford called MROCs. Um
0: how, how do you spell that?
1: E-M-R-O-X, Emergency yeah. Medicine Research In, which is not in the acronym, Oxford. Yes. <laughs> so another one of these slightly tenuous acronyms. And um, they were they were wonderful. They were very supportive. They wanted to see this in use. And we, we got local approval in Oxford to put one of these machines into practice. And um, This is the the shoebox-sized machine into practice and to put the algorithm into practice and then run, run the results in real time. And we... When we did the study, um, we needed a bit of help. We wanted people on the ground to help run these point-of-care samples to give you the quickest results. And for that, we called on um, the wonderful medical students of the University of Oxford um, who were brilliant. They they worked hard, they were enthusiastic, and they were helping out the clinical staff as well. So they would, for example, when a patient would come in, they would help with taking the blood, um, which is one job less for the clinical teams to do. They would take the blood... Run the sample and then send off the blood to the lab. Um, and we then had a look at various metrics and we compared it to lateral flows. And what we were able to show is that with this box on a desk and the algorithm, we could get results in 45 minutes instead of um, an hour and one minute from the front door for lateral flows. And that, I appreciate lateral flows take 30 minutes, but this is including the time from you first setting foot in the department up to having a result. So that's the time for you to find a bed um, for the swap to actually be taken for the swap to then be to, to then be run and we were our test was able to do it in 46 minutes lateral flows in one hour one minute kind of from door to result um, and that that was a big change because the la- the um, PCR tests still took another eight hours to give you a result so in in the heat of the moment that's very helpful it's it's a um, it, it just helps you move the hospital a bit bit quicker and I think the worry with lateral flows is that that there are some concerns about how sensitive they are. And I appreciate it. It's one of these very controversial topics of the day um, with various groups saying X, other groups saying Y. Um, we, we had a look at how lateral flows performed at our hospitals in Oxford, and we found that they, they were 56.9% sensitive. And what that means is they miss 43 out of every 100 PCR positive COVID patients we admit. And that while that might be all right in the community, in a hospital where you've got the most vulnerable patients, that, that's not not really good enough. And we wanted to see, can can our test give you more confident negative results? Can we be sure that um, a negative from our test means you don't have COVID? And fortunately,
0: the data showed that, and we were very pleased with it. So they were all these patients were getting PCR tests as well, so you had something to check against. Yes, yeah. and
1: by the time we got to this, everyone was getting PCRs. They were done in Oxford, and so it was taking 8 to 12 hours instead of three days as it was in in 2020.
0: And what, sorry, I think you may have just said it and I I missed it. So I'll just ask you to say it again. How did your um, uh, application compare with PCR for accuracy?
1: Um, So we were comparing our results to PCR, Mm -hmm. which means we, we, rather the PCR was our kind of our truth, that was our gold standard. So we could only benchmark it against the PCR rather than compare it with the PCR. But we compared it with the with the lateral flow test, yeah. and we showed that we were we were more sensitive, and that using a combination of the two, we could cut missed COVID cases by over seventy percent. And so for us, we saw our competitor as the lateral flow test rather right. than 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 the PCR test. Yeah. And where what we're kind of thinking in the, in the longer term is we're now moving to a phase where we're starting to live with COVID and and. Testing everyone who comes into the hospital by PCR is actually quite expensive, it's quite labour intensive, it's extra-clinical work. And we're now thinking about how can we use our algorithm on everyone who comes in to try and pick out which populations we should be testing. So rather than testing everyone and then getting back maybe 2% of our results are positive, can we pick out a population of five or ten percent and say we think fifty percent of this subgroup will test positive? So why don't we test these people as a priority, and then if the resource allows, we can then test the rest? But we think very few of them, if any, will test positive.
0: So what's uh, what's the, the and I mean I've, I've noticed looking at your paper that you've got. Various sort of subnames of Curial. <laughs> Curial 1, Curial Repeat, and Curial Lab. So what what are those three different things?
1: So Curial 1 is the the original Curial. Yeah. This was the, the first version of Curial from from March 2020, or it was probably it must have been late May by the time it was ready to go. So that was Curial 1. That used all of the data that we can get. That was your full panel of bloods and your vital signs. Curial lab was then taking out the blood tests that not every or not quite everyone got um, and the ones that took slightly longer so your your coagulation for example typically takes an extra 15-20 minutes mm. um and then curial repeat is the version which just uses your full blood count and your vitals and so can run on this box mm. at the work surface mm.
0: Mm. and and so what's the position at the moment what what's um is, is it still being used in the hospital so position today
1: um For us to get this wider, embedded into the NHS, we need to get some sort of regulatory, full regulatory approval, and that's going to take quite a bit of funding. So David Clifton and I are speaking with the university's tech transfer office, that's Oxford University Innovation, who are very kindly putting us in touch with investors, and we're looking at forming a startup company out of the university. And A, trying to take the curial technology into every hospital in this country and hopefully beyond, and B, whether we can use our methods and use our approach, but for something slightly different. So for example, we've done this for COVID, why can't we do this for flu? Why can't we do this for sepsis? And the idea would be to take the same same approach, same technology, same AI, but train it differently for flu and then start providing flu screening. So that, that's kind of the longer term vision, but that's going to need, it'll need a, a team, funding, resources, and we're hoping to be able to, to do that by, um, looking at the the startup mechanism. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well that's all very exciting but you as you did sort of mention you you are a junior doctor working in a hospital (laughs) so all the time all this development was going on presumably you had responsibilities as a clinician in a hospital that was coping with a with a pandemic. (laughs) Yes that's right, Um,
1: it's been busy it's been a busy few couple of years I think There there are several kind of reasons why it's worked out. So first of all, Oxford is brilliant. We we've had so much support, and myself, my job is a is a clinical academic role. So we have a portion of our time safeguarded for academic work, even during the pandemic. Well, not not during the height of COVID, but but in the kind of the the, there have been some lulls in the COVID workload. During those lulls, you've been able to get a bit of time. Secondly, we've been very fortunate in Oxford as a whole, and that we're we're a hospital with. We have our own clinical staff and they're all brilliant, they're all exceptionally good. But we also have a lot of researchers who are clinically trained and are working in research topics of, of all varieties. And so when, when the pandemic hit, a good number of, of researchers who are clinically trained could come back into clinical practice here. Um, and they, they were a wonderful support. So we had more numbers here than we did elsewhere. I think on balance, we, we were very fortunate here. We, we, had, we had the people um, and that that meant that we relatively you know, things relatively weren't as bad in Oxford as they were in say deprived parts of London or in in other inner cities.
0: That question I meant to ask earlier: I, I mean, are there are there any risks associated with shifting to an AI approach um, as opposed to um, the the thirty years experience <laughs> looking at looking at the data? So yes,
1: and. What, what our, a large part of our work is looking at how do we mitigate those risks? How do, we, how do we make sure that we're adding value without causing harm? And every medical test has a risk. So every medical test is imperfectly sensitive or is imperfectly specific. It's not, it either misses cases or it picks up too many or it takes too long or it just doesn't work. And I think the best that you can do is to compare your test to what the best thing in use out there is. What, what's your competitor? What are you actually trying to replace? And in our case, COVID is known as that can give you no symptoms at all or can give you very mild symptoms or any any one of a a long list of symptoms. And so your ability as a clinician to say a patient doesn't have COVID is actually quite slim. And during the height of, of, say, the Omicron wave, one in maybe, you know, as much as one in 10 of your patients will have had COVID and you may not know about it. Whereas in the lull of the summer beforehand covid was actually quite uncommon and maybe one in 200 of your patients will have had covid and so clinical symptoms alone isn't enough you need something more because people can have no symptoms and that's where a test result comes in very helpful and you can design how you use a test to make sure you don't do harm so for example what we what we said in a sub part of our study is if if curio says you haven't got covid but a lateral flow test says you do then we think you should act as though that person does have covid and in doing that, you make sure that there's you 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 can't possibly be more dangerous than than the current standard of care, if that makes sense. So mm-hmm. yes, there are risks, but a lot of clinical AI is about mitigating those risks and trying to at least show that you're better than what we have in use today. Good.
0: Thank you. Yes, I'm glad I remembered to get that in. <laughs> um, and and is I mean, is this an approach unique to? to Oxford at the moment, or are other similar um, approaches being developed elsewhere that you're aware of in the world or or in the country?
1: Um, so COVID triage is a very hot topic, everyone's interested in it, very important, um, and broadly you've got the the AI approaches to COVID and the non-AI, the majority of non-AI, the lateral flow is the most common. Of the AI approaches, there are other groups out there who've published... Um, Similar things to our study. So, so in the kind of in the year since our initial study, there have been a handful of papers that have tried to replicate it, and they've all been able to replicate it. And in science, that's a good thing. It suggests that we're onto something here. Um, in terms of actually getting it into clinical use, I think we're the furthest ahead by some distance. I think the other groups, at least, have not stated an intention of trying to get this into practice. Um, and I think that that's part of our case for. For trying to spin this out as a company, we think we think we're onto something. We think we're. Well, we hope. We <laughs> hope. We hope it's 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 going to work, and we we hope that we've got a bit of a competitive advantage, and mm. that, that's why we're hoping that a startup might might allow us to to put this into wider use. But no, there aren't there aren't others who are using something like this clinically. Hmm. Mm.
0: Good. Right. So I'm going to, to go to sort of more slightly more personal questions. Um, well, I've got to no. I think we have covered that. I was going to say, mm-hmm. how did the first lockdown impact on what you were able to do, which is a question I've been asking everybody. But you're a doctor working in a hospital, so right. Uh, <laughs> basically, it meant putting on three layers of first uh, PPE and getting on with it, presumably.
1: Yes, I. I think again, this comes back to us having ex- you know excellent clinical leadership in Oxford. The guys who were running the show in Oxford made sure we had the PPE. They, you know, everyone was trying very hard. It was, it was difficult, but. In Oxford, we, 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 we I you know I definitely felt as though we were protected in Oxford. Mm. I felt like we had we had the staff when we needed them, and sure there were times when things were tough. But I can only think of people who were elsewhere who didn't have the kind of resource that we had here. Yeah.
0: Mm. Did you see colleagues falling sick, and and did that? I mean, to what extent did you feel personally threatened by the virus, or maybe you've had it? I don't
1: know. Um, so I failed to prove that I've had it. I think. From a statistic, just looking at it statistically, I, I think it's nearly, nearly impossible that I've not had it, and that I've been more than adequately exposed. And, and I think, I think we're looking at a very high percentage of the population having had it. Yeah. I mean, of course, we we were amongst the first to get vaccines in Oxford because because it's Oxford. Yeah. Um, but, yes, we, we did look after colleagues who were sick. Mm. Um, there, there were there were some some who died, and I think it you know there were there were moments which were tough. That were. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm mindful that there's a lot I can't say, but but there were moments when you when you were affected because there were people who you would have worked with, or people who you would have walked past in the corridors, with or shared a canteen with. You know, this was your trust, your staff. I think fortunately the majority, of, you know, I, I'm young and so therefore I'm in a lower risk category, and we we got vaccines early and we we were well protected here. But no, it was it was tough.
0: Mm, mm. And there's obviously the, the the kind of psychological impact of this the constant uncertainty in, in some ways. Do you do you think that the fact that you had this pro the curial project to work on um, that you you sound very positive about <laughs> it, it seems to have been quite optimistic as it went along. Do, do you think that helped support your own well being that you had that that focus?
1: I hundred th- percent. I think it's nice to feel like you're doing something and that you're doing something that that can make a difference and. I think this was my way of lockdown amusement. When, when I wasn't at work and couldn't go out, well, I had something to
0: do. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you talked earlier about how your reason for going into medicine was probably different from what it's turned out to be. And I wondered if that... I mean, most people seem to go into medicine because they want to help people. But is, is, that, is that what sort of came round full circle in the end?
1: I think so. I, I think that... that... I think what, what I'm realizing more and more is that trying to, there is a lot of AI out there, which does a lot of things, but how much of it is in our day to day clinical use? How much do I actually use in my day job? Well, nearly none. And as someone who is technically inclined, who loves tech and is medically trained, you find yourself in a position where you're, you're actually, you're really able to make a difference. You're really able to take this tech, which people who work in David's lab, you know top of their game they know their stuff they make cool things but getting it from cool thing in a lab to cool thing in clinical practice is, is an almighty leap and I think that's where being a where I'm very glad to be a doctor because it helps me work on that leap from lab to, to real world. Mm,
0: mm. Oh that's a very good point yeah um so I'm, I think I'm drawing to a close so so uh, you, you've partly um answered this I think but has the work you've done on Curiel raised uh, new questions that you'd like to work on in the future? Oh, lots! I think I've learned an
1: almighty <laughs> amount. There are things you learned that you knew you were going to learn, and things you learned that you were never you you had no idea were were things. Um, Such as, sorry, can you give me? Oh, so so I I think it's I've definitely engaged in the field of AI ethics and the practicalities of AI deployment differently to how I would before. I think before I might have seen it as. A little bit restrictive, something which makes it very difficult for you to get stuff into practice, which is good. I think part of doing this work is, is actually meeting the people who, who who are interested in the field, and you learn that actually it's a much more nuanced approach. This this is a they're kind of very well thought out reasons for why things are the way they are, and learning about those a has has made me interested in how can you make this process work as well as possible between you know join the bridges. And, and be how can you engage with the process and actually genuinely deliver something that's better for everyone? Um, I think I'll, I sort of want to do it again. I want to <laughs> not COVID. I mean, I mean, take take a clinical problem, apply some sort of machine learning technique, and solve the clinical problem. And um,
0: yes, <laughs> yeah, yes, with the, with the with the benefit of the experience that you've that mm. you've already got, mm, mm. and. Has, has the experience changed your attitude or your approach to your work? And are, are there things you'd like to see change in the future? I mean, actually, one th- question I didn't ask, which I should have um, asked more specifically, is about collaboration, because clearly it's a mm. multidisciplinary approach. Um, did you find that this project um, involved wider collaboration than, than might normally be the case? I mean, I know academic life can be tremendously competitive, mm. um, But in this instance, a lot of people were trying to solve a problem very quickly, and actually competition can get in the way of that.
1: Yes, so what was unique about the circumstances in February and March, I think the regulatory authorities were taking an extremely pragmatic view. So, for example, we didn't need to go through the the full six-month ethical approval cycle. In fact, I remember one morning we submitted the ethics application to the HRA. In the afternoon, I had a phone call from a gentleman called Kevin, who was very friendly, and said, right, we're good to go. (laughs) Um, which is that is not what happens in standard times it's often many months and that that was that was because of the pandemic I think work like this needs you to collaborate a with technical experts b with clinicians c with clinicians elsewhere to get data from elsewhere and then d with an almighty number of people in research services and university support roles and without that kind of infrastructure without all those people you you can't do it you need everyone and everyone plays their role and I think what what Sort of sometimes upsets me is sometimes people who you've worked with have been very helpful. They never find out that because of what they did, this whole big project has managed to work out in the end. Um, and I, I think it probably certainly when I'm a junior doctor, I, I, I do a little a little role, for example, helping operate a computer <laughs> or some some quite um, some some paperwork, and that paperwork may feel mundane at the time, it might feel like a small role, but in the bigger picture it's important and it's a small piece of a big puzzle and I, I think that's, that's how i describe this, Everything's a small piece of a big puzzle.
0: Mm-hmm. But, do, but do you think actually there's a case for that, um, I don't know, will to, to get things working quickly mm. um, or to survive <laughs> after we're no longer facing the pressures of the pandemic?
1: yes um this is a bit difficult in that i think as someone who wants to see ai in clinical practice a lot of the structures and barriers to to adoption that they're, they're very well described there are people have written quite long and well thought out pieces about what kinds of barriers you look at many of those barriers represent real practical problems that you need to think about but COVID has shown some very good examples of where when when those barriers are waived people can can bring innovation into the real world much more quickly. So I, I, I hope I hope you'll get to meet the the team behind the recovery trial but that that's a fantastic example of mm. how something of yeah. It's it's a fantastic example of how something has come into clinical practice so quickly and has made such a difference and saved so many lives mm. and undoubtedly a lower burden of regulation a lower burden of of um, bureaucracy and paperwork will have allowed them to do that in that time frame and um, to what extent those the the lessons from that are going to persist I don't know and whether we're going to see a systematic reduction in red tape looking at the successes from COVID or whether we'll double down and and maybe I think I think it's it's hard to know it's hard to know but i'm sure there'll be lots of very bright people who are very interested in this and who will study it and will hopefully come up with some conclusions for us that we can we can take forward brilliant thanks very much